Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. The Lazarus Group is a notorious North Korean team of cybercriminals who've been implicated in such exploits as the 2014 Sony Pictures breach, the 2016 attempt to steal $1 billion from Bangladesh Bank, and the 2017 WannaCry ransomware attack. Most recently, they've been implicated in the $625 million cryptocurrency theft from Axie Infinity's Ronin Bridge. On this episode, I'm joined by someone that's followed Lazarus Group closely for years, investigative journalist and author Jeff White. We discuss the origins of Lazarus Group and the amazing stories from his podcast and upcoming book, Lazarus Heist. Finally, if I didn't see you in person at the Chainalysis Links conference in New York City, I have good news. You can find links to video recordings of all the amazing content in the show notes. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Jeff White, who if you follow the cybersecurity industry, the the world of the dark web and state-sponsored hackers, his name is probably very familiar to you. You might've actually even uh, listened to his podcast covering the organization known as Lazarus. He's got a new book coming out soon, which we're going to chat about. I am fascinated by your work, Jeff. Thanks for agreeing to come on the podcast and and talk with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Uh, I always like to start on this podcast talking a little bit about people's cryptocurrency origin story. You've been in this longer than most. You know, when did you first encounter crypto as as a topic, and you know what led you uh, to dive deep into that world and and uh, and start reporting on it? Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, I, I suppose I was on in on in on crypto fairly early, at least Bitcoin fairly early. Um, we covered Silk yeah. Road, the infamous dark web tour uh, site, and through that, obviously, started finding out about this new currency, Bitcoin. Before Silk Road, I hadn't come across Bitcoin, so the two revelations of tour and Bitcoin came along uh, once, um, and really, it just kept cropping up in so many of the investigations that I did because it just became the currency of choice for that entire. Sort of dark web underground economy. It's led to some quite entertaining instances. I, you know, at one point discovered an old Bitcoin wallet that I'd set up because people forget, you know, when Bitcoin first started out, it was worthless. It was basically worthless um, initially. And, you know, I'd, I'd obtained some Bitcoin for our Channel 4 News investigations. I was working for Channel 4 News at the time and had made purchases um, on the dark web. There is, by the way, a legal get out. If you are obtaining drugs and possessing drugs for the purpose of instantly disposing of them, then you're very, very unlikely to be prosecuted. So this is, for example, if teachers confiscate drugs from their pupils or, you know, for a journalistic drug buying mission to test whether these sites actually did sell drugs. We, we did make some purchases. Therefore, I did get some Bitcoin. So I set up some wallets and I would have expensed that Bitcoin back to Channel 4 News, for whom I was working at the time, and then came across the wallets years later. And I did say to my partner, I said, um, I've, I've come across half a Bitcoin. And she said, well, how much is that worth? And at the time, it was something like £6,000. And she, her eyes sort of widened. And then I looked again and said, oh, no, I, I must have spent all that on heroin. Um, <laughs> so there are some quite entertaining instances. Um, but also, I want to just bookend this by, by the fact that I have resisted for a very, very long time investing any money in yeah. Bitcoin. Because I just feel that as a journalist, I need to stay independent. I need to stay neutral. Um, I finally cracked in the past year, I think it was, and thought, you know, I'm going to put some money into Bitcoin because as, a, as an asset class, it does quite well. It is appreciating. Yeah. It seems sensible voice. Lots of other people are doing it. Since that day, the price has gone just down and down and down. And then recently, in the last couple of days, we've obviously had a big event. So I think 
I think basically I've killed it. I'm so sorry. You I were haven't. the precipitating cause of the market downturn, the all-time high, and then you invest. As soon as I put in, sorry, that's then. it. That's it, folks. It's, uh, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> I hope it's not easy to discover your address. There's a lot of angry cryptocurrency uh, investors who may be coming your way now having that knowledge that you you were the, the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back. That's amazing. Also, your story about uh, money spent on drugs, much better than the gentleman who spent a few hundred uh, Bitcoin on pizza. <laughs> <laughs> One of the problems with cryptocurrency is it's really difficult to un- to appreciate the, the, the beginnings of it, because we look back at it through the through the current era when it's worth loads and it's well-developed, you cannot understand, it's very hard to understand, I think, for most people, how it started out. It was it was funny money. It was joke, almost joke money um, for a lot of people. So, so uh, yeah, it's interesting. It, it, it is amazing. And I, I, uh, I didn't actually buy any drugs on any darknet markets, but I do recall early looks at, at cryptocurrency were kind of like just passing as a interested technologist. And I, I said, this, this is never going to take off. This is like a very small group of people who have an interesting uh, sort of side project and it's going to fizzle out and go away. So I've been uh, consistently wrong on that to the point that I actually had to come and join a company operating in the space because I, I capitulated fully. Um, so, so the early days into cryptocurrency, also early days in uh, to to this organization known as Lazarus. Re-listening mm-hmm. to your podcast this morning, I, I don't know about the audience, but I had sort of forgotten that the sort of severity of the hack that Sony Pictures experienced and the lead up to that. Uh, but at the time, this was one of the the biggest uh, sort of cyber crimes to hit a major corporation. Yeah, it was huge. It was huge and it was high profile as well. You know, this wasn't bank or financial institution or whatever. This was this was Sony. A lot of this, again, makes sense. Like Bitcoin actually makes sense in hindsight. So I will be the first to admit when the Sony hack happened and the US came out and publicly blamed North Korea so quickly, I was skeptical and I was phoning contacts saying, come on, what, what, why? What's the, you know, what's the attribution here? And it really took four years for that attribution to, to fully be fleshed out. There was a, there was a 2018 indictment from the US uh, against a North Korean individual who they said is part of the, the Lazarus group. And in that, you, you suddenly get all of the detail that the US alleges was behind this hack. But at the time, all we knew was Sony had been hacked and somebody had done it. But what was astonishing, again, in hindsight about this, was that previously hackers had hacked information and dumped it. And that's kind of how, to a certain sense, still how it works. With the Sony hack, it was one of these amazing instances where the, the hackers worked out what they'd got, broke it up into chunks, and then released those chunks in a very, very clearly defined order, which was going to lead up to a crescendo, which is exactly how journalists work. When we get a leak of information, we don't just dump it all in, the, in one day's paper or program. We, we eke it out over the course of a week and we make the pain worse and worse and worse for the, for the target of the investigation. The hackers did exactly the same. They were after the two people who headed up Sony, you know, Michael Linton and Amy Pascal. And they worked up to that crescendo like a, like a sort of performance piece almost. It was frightening in hindsight. And that goes alongside all the destructive malware that they dropped on Sony that crippled thousands of their computers and reduced them to working on paper and pens. Even fax machines didn't work in Sony. It was it was absolutely astonishing. I mean, they, they, they even managed to shut down the coffee shop uh, was the, the detail. Somebody, somebody, somebody on the investigation I spoke to said that they were the payroll system obviously was, was, was shafted yeah. as well. So people were sort of having to queue in the car park to have checks written out for them. 
I had this impression that you'd queue up and they'd say, well, how much is your normal monthly salary? And you say, oh, it's X thousand dollars. Somebody would write you out a little check and hand it to you. And you go to that. I'm not sure whether that's quite how it happened, but but payroll was everything. As you say, coffee shops, the lot, the lot, the doors didn't work. It was mayhem. That's it, mayhem. The technical sophistication, I think I uh, had come to expect, right? Like you have, you have people building software and then you have people who can kind of find the vulnerability and exploit it. But this is the first attack that I can remember that had this uh, coordinated sophistication on how it unfolded. Like they were maximizing for damage to Sony's brand and reputation. They had identified people that they felt personally offended the regime and they went after them directly. There was a lot of thought and planning that went into this. There was, there was. But also you have to realize that was going on in, in terms in a, among a general milieu of, of, of computer hacking becoming more advanced and data leaks and reputational damage becoming more targeted. Um, the anonymous group point was rampaging around the internet, doing very strategic leaks of information and really targeting organizations. So yes, it was very sophisticated, but that was also a reflection of what was happening in cyber at the time and still does to a certain extent. It was a, a very, very well-planned case of that sort of reputational damage and, and, and strategic leaking instances. One of the things that you allude to early in the podcast is that in some ways, Lazarus fell out of the fact that North Korea becomes so isolated from the global financial system because of sanctions related to their nuclear ambitions and a variety of other things they had done. Um, is that a, is that a reasonable summary in in your opinion? Like Lazarus happened because North Korea had to find capacity to fund the economy, basically, and electronic theft became a, an obvious target, right? You talk about sanctions on a country, you know, and, and there are sanctions on North Korea. And as you say, those sanctions have come about because of North Korea's belligerent and obstinate continuation of missile uh, and nuclear tests. The reason North Korea does all of that is to maintain a seat at the international table. You know, the reason we, frankly, the reason a lot of politicians care about North Korea is because it's a nuclear power. Uh, and North Korea knows that and will not let go of that thing. Now, the, the, the awful cost of that is that the sanctions come about because of that. When you actually look at those sanctions and how much pressure it puts North Korea under, it is almost impossible for North Korea to sort of buy or sell anything. I mean, it can't. The, the way other countries work, the, you know, the way the US, the way the UK, the way these countries work economically, we make stuff and we sell it. You know, we provide services. None of it's available to North Korea. Almost, there's almost no way for this country to function economically, and that's part of the reason, I guess, for the sanctions. So, so North Korea's had to look at different other ways. You know, they've had to look at things like smuggling, and I'm not, you know, expressing a sympathy for that. It's still illegal activity, but it's it's forged out of this desperation for money. The computer hacking that they're doing is to top up the government's coffers, and that's led North Korea into a really interesting position, which I think is really worth looking at in terms of how other nation states are working um, with organized cybercrime. Because North Korea's hackers, if the allegations against them are correct, are hacking into banks and cryptocurrency exchanges and all that stuff that we'll probably come on to talk about. They're also having to work alongside organized cybercrime and organized street crime in some cases to, to launder that money and to yeah. acquire that money and to use and move that money. So suddenly you get nation state hackers working with organized cybercrime. That's worrying, but that's a trend that's happening more and more. More and more governments are, are starting to work either through or with or behind the cover of organized cybercrime for, for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, it gives them 
the organized cybercrime gangs have the tools, they have the infrastructure, but also it's palpable deniability. If you can hide behind an organized cybercrime group as a government, well, that allows you to get away with stuff that otherwise you might get caught and and called out for. So the the foe that North Korea is plowing in this, I feel is a foe that a lot of people are, other people are going to start yeah. plowing it and po- probably I mean, we see it with, uh, I think, 75% of the, the ransomware attacks originate by groups that are primarily in Russia. And so they're kind of operating, if not directly state-sponsored, at least under an umbrella of protection provided by the Russian government. That's, that's long been the accusation, yeah. One of the interesting stories in the podcast, you know, it, it's a little far afield of our, our normal topics here is real money laundering. This super note, I had not heard this story before, but it seems like a volume of $100 bills that were counterfeit for a, over a long period of time were originating out of North Korea. Like they were just printing their own uh, US currency. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The super dollar story is really interesting. And I'll be honest, I, I was a bit lukewarm about putting it in the podcast and also that therefore into the book uh, that I've written off the back of the podcast. Our producer, Estelle, um, who's fantastic, fantastic producer at the BBC, she said, look, it's a really interesting story. And I'm so glad that she did because, yeah, the accusation is that North Korea, as it started to run out of money, and this is after the Great Famine in, in the mid-1990s, it was a horrific famine hit the country. And, and the country really got very close, I think, to hitting the buffers at that point. Obviously needed ways of making money and had a printer, had paper for banknotes. Um, and so the, the allegation is decided to start printing $100 bills, so-called super dollars. The, the amazing thing about these dollars is they're actually better in some cases than the real thing. The printing is a little bit sharper in some cases. The thing is, once you get into the mechanics of all this, it's very difficult to do. You, you need the right paper um, for a start to print on, because the US obviously makes the right paper. And if you try and use paper that's not right, the Americans would spot it in a heartbeat. So you need the right paper, you need the right ink, you need the right printer. North Korea's diplomats and officials have been caught on multiple occasions with these counterfeit notes. Now, the North Korean response to this is, look, we're not counterfeiting. One of their arguments to say, well, look, because we're cut off from the international financial community, our diplomats and officials just end up with these banknotes. We have a lot of cash because we have to have cash. And so inevitably, we're going to end up with more counterfeit cash. You'd have to be hella unlucky to end up with the quantity of counterfeit $100 bills they've ended up with. So the idea is, well, North Korea is, is printment. There is not, I will say, there's not, you know, there's not video evidence of Kim Jong-il standing over a big printing press reeling out notes. You know, you know, people who've investigated on the part of the US are convinced North Korea is the source of these banknotes. And it was a hugely destabilizing issue for the United States and led to a couple of absolutely astonishing undercover uh, operations to try and crack down on this, in which FBI officers pretended to be criminals and then pretended to have wedding parties and invited their accomplices along and then arrested them at the wedding. It was proper narco stuff. It was really amazing. People need to read the book or, or listen to the podcast to, to catch that whole story. I agree. It's just, it reads like a movie script uh, in terms of the, the sequence of events playing out. I was smiling the whole time, re-listening to the podcast this morning, just thinking about, it almost sounds unbelievable, but it actually happened, right? You can go on the FBI website and find photos of the, the wedding invite and things like that. I mean, you know, this is the thing, the Sony case, the Superdolls case, yes, they are astonishing and they are entertaining. You know, we just got to consider the backdrop to them, which is this is a country where, you know, 25 million people are are, are experiencing desperate poverty at the moment, potentially experiencing a COVID outbreak, which is very, very worrying, and also repressed by an incredibly oppressive dictatorial government. So you've always got to kind of keep it in the back of your mind that there is a serious hinterland to this. But you're right, some of these stories just do feel like they've been taken out of a Hollywood script. (laughs) 
They really do. And I, I mean, the, the, the other one that I was just going to mention in the history is this Bangladesh bank heist, which had they actually managed to pull it off completely, would have been one of the, the largest thefts ever, right? This was, I think, in terms of a single cyber criminal theft, they went after $951 million. And so had they pulled it off, pretty sure that would have been the largest single one-off, single attack amount. There's, there's other cybercrime groups, you know, including Lazarus, Lazarus, who've made billions over the years in different attacks in different ways. But I'm talking about one hit, one attack, one amount. Um, they didn't get that amount of money for a whole bunch of intriguing reasons, which we can go into, including spelling mistakes and, and, and so on. But coincidences that cost them a lot of money. So that was what they went after, a billion dollars. And, and it's worth noting Bangladesh Bank is the central financial institution uh, of Bangladesh. It's, it's like the Bank of England, basically. It's, it's the, the country's central repository of, of, of money. So an extremely high profile target and a ballsy target to go after, let's face it. You know, it seems like the Lazarus hasn't slowed down from that point, right? I mean, we've been watching them in the context of cryptocurrency theft our analysis suggests, you know, last year they they stole several hundred million dollars in cryptocurrency, primarily targeting smaller exchanges, not not a billion dollar hit. But then uh, earlier this year, it appears that the popular cryptocurrency video game platform Axie Infinity they were compromised, and the current evidence seems to point to Lazarus uh, made off with about six hundred million in currency. So they're they're stepping up efforts here. Again, I, th- I think that is actually the largest single one-off amount of, co- of of money stolen in a single cyber attack. I mean, there was. It's also worth just bearing in mind because the value of cryptocurrency, as we know, goes up and down quite a lot. Um, so you know, the Mt. Gox raid w- will now be worth many, many orders of magnitude more than it was at the, at the time. But I, I think, in terms of an at the time one-off. Raid value six hundred, I think six hundred twenty-five million from the from the Axie Infinity Ronin Bridge hack that's been attributed to Lazarus Group. I think is probably the the biggest single one. But as well, you'll know, and, and you know, you guys at Chainalysis and, and other cryptocurrency tracing companies are, are all over that uh, that money because obviously the joy of cryptocurrency is you can trace it. And so, whilst it's an astonishing amount of money to to steal half of more than half a billion dollars, as far as I'm aware, I think last figure I read was something like eighteen percent of that so far has been laundered and potentially cashed out. So there's still a lot of money left yeah. to be pulled out by the hackers, and that money is obviously going to be traced, you know, from place to place to place to place. Um, which is what you know I go into in the book that that effort to trace the money and keep on top of it. Um, so it's it's this amazing thing where you know we have this saying in the UK you know you you can have your cake you want to have your cake and eat it. You can have your cake but you can't eat it, or you can eat it and you've not got any cake. If you're stealing that amount of money, it's great, but then it sits behind glass and you can't get your hands on it. So yeah, you've got six hundred million dollars, but you can't spend it. Yeah, I think some of it's uh, even been retrieved uh they were trying to cash some out through yes Binance. yeah exactly and and binance was able to see it coming in and and froze the accounts before they could could flip it back out again you know i think i think there'll be a lot of efforts over the next couple of years to retrieve retrieve as much of those funds as they can but just it's just worth reflecting on that though quickly i mean if, if it is i think i say 18 percent was the last figure i heard so that's a fifth of 600 million that's just over 100 million isn't it that is still more money than they managed to get out of Bangladesh Bank. And the Bangladesh Bank job took at least a year and a half to line up, to do the hacking, to line up all the accounts, to, to wash the money through casinos, which is another bizarre thing I go into in the book. So, you know, it's an amazing story, but it took so long, a year and a half, and they ended up with in the tens of millions at the end of it. They hit Axie Infinity. Yeah, they don't get the whole $600 million 
dollars all at once because they can't launder it out, but they get 100 million. So they've already got more than they did in the entire year and a half they spent on Bangladesh Bank. You know, you wonder why they're after cryptocurrency. There's your answer. You get more money quicker. <laughs> there's, there's a velocity action there that I think uh, they're, they're not having to go back into real world currency in some ways, like the electronic nature of it seems to aid the speed of attack, potentially, and maybe even, you know, lower sophistication of the victims in some cases, right? Like in the in the Bangladesh Bank case, they had to figure out how to compromise a system that basically required you to be in the building with the SWIFT payment network, where cryptocurrency networks intentionally operate in the open. It's an interesting contrast. I was just going to say, you know, the, the, the ones that you guys attract, the ones that we attract as journalists, these are simply the high profile cases that we know about and are attributed to, to Lazarus Group. One of the hacks we've covered, it's not in the book, but it'll be in series two of the podcast, um, which is going to be out later this year, is a, is a chap who lost a million and a half. And that's not, obviously, it's nowhere near at like the 600 million we've been talking about. But still a million and a half, that's a, that's a stack of money. How many other cases are there like that, that have just never really been reported? You know, it's a million here, it's a million there. So the big ones that we know about add up to you know the billions, but but that's ignoring the, the the millions and millions of other dollars that are being made just here and there from from, from attacks that, we, that never hit the news that nobody ever talks about. This is one of the topics that I think is is popular right now in U.S. policy circles: is how do we get better reporting on these cyber incidents? Because I think the government statistics wildly underreport the scale and magnitude of the problem. To your point, you know, Ronan Bridge had to come out because. Well, it was six hundred million dollars. It kind of collapsed the the bridge. There was no opportunity for uh, keeping that one quiet. But I think uh, other companies, you know, they potentially suffer a ransomware attack, and there's there's strong incentive from a brand reputation perspective to quietly pay the re- the ransom and move on. We certainly are able to see on chain significantly more payment activity than is officially reported through companies you know, bringing compromise to light. I'm curious, a moment ago, you touched on the laundering via casino. So there's, there's a huge amount of counterfeit, both currency, pharmaceuticals, and trade happening via North Korea. All that money has to then get brought back into the economy somehow. Cryptocurrency, they're trying to launder that. Like, What does this money laundering apparatus look like? It's a really good question. Let's start with the end result of it first, because that's probably a good way to think about this. I think I certainly started out when I was writing the book and, and making the podcast thinking, well, there'll be a sort of end scene to this where Kim Jong-un is rolling around on a bed full of money, you know, banknotes, uh, laughing like some sort of movie villain. But actually, that's 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 not necessarily the case. The, the, the ultimate destination of this money, if indeed it has been stolen by North Korea, is is not necessarily Pyongyang. Firstly, there's, there's not much stuff to buy in Pyongyang. That's a, that's a part of it. But also getting it across the border and, and, and moving it into North Korea isn't necessarily the end game. North Korea can sort of keep this money outside its borders in nearby locations, Macau and Hong Kong and so on, or in cryptocurrency wallets can just keep it in a wallet somewhere on the internet and sort of use it as a kind of you know, offshore credit, if you like. It'd be like having a, a bank account in France if you go on, to, on holiday in France that's just full of money. And whenever you go to France, you can just spend it on French stuff because it's all it's all in euros. It's that sort of thing. They, they, these stolen funds can become tokens, offshore tokens that, that can be spent. There's an intriguing case that's being reported at the moment of allegations against a couple of South Koreans working with a, a North Korean agent. And the North Korean agent was paying them in cryptocurrency. The idea that the money sort of flows back to Pyongyang, in inverted commas, isn't necessarily the case. It's maybe a bit smarter than yeah. that. But the laundering that the laundering that goes on, we need to sort of split, I think, into crypto laundering and, and 
non-crypto laundering. The non-crypto laundering stuff, when North Korea is accused of hacking into banks and, and transferring money out, they need to transfer the money somewhere. They have to launder it. They have to hide the trail. You can't just transfer it back to you know Kim Jong-un's bank account. <laughs> if you're young. It'd be fairly obvious who committed the crime. So they're constantly searching, as are lots of other cyber crime gangs, cyber operators, for, for accomplices to work with that can hide the tracks and that can move money around. And this has led them to some really sort of bizarre avenues. So in the Bangladesh Bank case, the money, Bangladesh Bank's money was, was in New York. That, that then got moved by the hackers to a bank in Manila, in the Philippines, and then moved into casinos. And the idea of the casinos was that if you convert the money into cash, and we're talking 500 kilos of cash, Philippines pesos, is a, a grand piano's worth of cash. You then change that into chips. You gamble the chips across the table. You get fresh chips back. You change your chips back into other cash and carry it out of the building. Well, an investigator can't link the note that went into the bank to the note that comes out. That's the whole thing. But in order to make that work, you can't just go to the casino table and say, oh, here's my $100 million of chips. Could you give me $100 million of chips back? That's not going to work. They're going to spot. So you have to play the game. You actually have to literally move the money across the table. So if you're remarkably from the hack in Bangladesh, which is all very digital and all very highfalutin and high tech, you end up at frankly, with a bunch of dudes in a casino in, in, in the Philippines, just shoveling chips across the table. That that's, and, and what's amazing about that is they did all that and they laundered $81 million through the Philippines. And that took a year, as I say, a year, year and a half of setting up. And it took a month, a solid month of gambling in the casino. They were going to move $951 million, right? More than 10 times as much. They would have had to have spent a solid year shoveling chips across the table to launder. I mean, the idea that they were going to do that is just, if, if you read the book, there were some interesting quirks about what actually might have been the plan, but I, I won't go into those. So that's the sort of bank laundering stuff. Oh, the other thing that the, that the North Koreans are accused of getting involved in is, is laundering money via cash points. So break into a bank, manipulate the cash point system and get accomplices around the world to withdraw the cash out of the cash points. It's called jackpotting. And that leads them into some really bizarre accomplices, you know, guy in Canada who's working with an Instagram influencer in Dubai, who's living in the Palazzo Versace Hotel, who's helping them organize these bank accounts, just these incredible sort of linkages. So that's all the accomplices around money laundering and moving money from traditional banking sector. With the crypto side, you've got a similar challenge. You know, you can't just move the money into your wallet. So again, there's been evidence of, of, of Lazarus Group hackers being accused of working with accomplices who can change the money into iTunes gift cards or funnel the money through bank accounts or who can set up accounts at exchanges. So as, as they've moved targets and moved into the cryptocurrency space, their accomplices have just shifted into people who kind of understand crypto in the same way the guys you know, lining up the Manila casinos understood, you know, how to, how to work a casino. Same, same shit, different day, basically. That's amazing. I think I had heard a story about the ATM cards being distributed across Japan, sort of low-level organized crime people handed, handed ATM cards and told to go across Tokyo to all, all sorts of cash point or ATM devices, withdraw a very precise amount that stayed below the transaction monitoring radar, and then all come back at the same time. And that level of coordinated activity is is just unbelievable that a group of people, you know, largely contained within this isolated country are able to pull this off. 
it gets even more insane. I mean, one of the, the, the cases I talk about in the book, in fact, it's the opening example in the book because I just found it such an incredible story, was the hacking of Cosmos Bank in India, which is a, I think it's the second largest bank in India. It's a huge bank. And again, the hackers gained access to the ATM approval system. And again, they recruited accomplices around the world who could go to cash points with the cards and, and withdraw money. Um, $11 million gets withdrawn in a window of two hours and 13 minutes. Now, that's, that's accomplices in the US, Canada, UK, Turkey, Washington Federation, Japan. Well, when it's 10 o'clock in the morning in the US and you're pulling money out, it's the middle of the night in Japan. If you've got a two-hour window, that's a two-hour window in every time zone around the world. And so you have to have dudes ready and lined up, to ready to go. We strongly suspect that, that these people were recruited through the dark web. According to US Department of Justice allegations, North Korea has used the dark web before for, you know, is, is on these particular dark web forums. So it makes sense that that's where they'd be finding and recruiting these these accomplices. But no, those, those jackpotting ATM raids are, are, are just absolutely astonishing. And then you've got people running around with cash, like literal cash. So what do they do? You know, FedEx it to, to, to Pyongyang or something like that? How does the money reconciliation system kind of work? It's really interesting. What we don't know is whether when the hackers broke into the bank, they simply sold on the information to people who then jackpotted it. And it was just a one-time deal. And then the jackpotters keep the money. Or was there some plan that the hackers would break in, give the jackpotters the details, the jackpotters would, would jackpot the cash points, and then the money would somehow be reconciled back? We don't know. It could have been just a straight one-off deal, and that's clean and effective. But it could have been there was some kind of revenue split worked out later on. I, I, that's the level of detail I just don't know. I would love to know. <laughs> would really love to know. How these these groups come together uh, to collaborate on on these elaborate schemes is just fascinating to me. Jeff, I, I think we're on a tight schedule this morning. I could actually talk to you all day about this stuff. I am, I'm personally fascinated. Thank you from all our listeners for joining us today. The book, give us the title. When Where can people find it? When does it come out? It's called The Lazarus Heist, same as the podcast. It comes out on the 9th of June. In the UK, you can get a physical copy of the book, which looks very lovely. Rest of the world is available on audio, audiobook and Kindle. So if you're outside the UK, that's the way to purchase it. And the audiobook is, just to, to settle this, it is read out by me. I do read out the audiobook. So my, my dulcet tones will be coming in your ears. As they Outstanding. Say. I can't wait for it. I've got my pre-order in already. And you mentioned season two of the podcast is going gonna, is gonna to start up soon. Yes, we are working on that as we speak. Um, I do. Part of me does wish that, that the Lazarus Group, the allegations against it, would just stop for a while, just so we can catch up. Because it just doesn't. Every time we think, oh, we do okay, we're ready to finish now and put it all together, something new happens. So that we think later in the year, we, we're aiming for October-ish, but, uh, but later in the year, and there's just loads of amazing stories to put in that. So we can't wait to edit that all together. It's going to be huge fun. Oh, I can't wait for that. It's uh, I'm queued up, subscribed, and ready to go. Jeff, thanks again for your time today. It was terrific. Really enjoyed it. Ian, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Key. We're releasing new episodes weekly, so if you liked what you heard, then don't forget to subscribe, review, and share with your friends. Here's something to think about before the next episode. Among crypto enthusiasts, it's well known there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin created. However, Chainalysis estimates about 3.7 million Bitcoin have already been lost forever, leaving the true amount that could be accessed and sold around 17.3 million. Finally, if you couldn't make it in person to the Chainalysis Links conference, don't worry. You can find links to video recordings of all the amazing content in the show notes.